Welcome to the 251st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion with Jason Kaufman and Jean Kilheffer Hess, creators of the Anabaptist History Today Project. This project captures Anabaptist experiences, including those of Mennonite and Amish communities throughout the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, April 1st, 2021, there are 2,818,170 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has climbed to 552,073. In Ireland, 4,687 have died of COVID-19, and in Belgium, it's 23,016 who've died from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, I was infected, tackles infection with hate and prejudice in age of COVID-19 pandemic. This was written by Her Yun Hee and appeared in the Hankyore newspaper in South Korea, March 21st, 2021. In March of 2020, he became confirmed case number 13 in Seoul's Songbuk district. He had contracted COVID-19 while traveling to the United States earlier that month to attend a meeting of the Academic Council on the United Nations system. The virus ended up turning his life upside down. He underwent treatment while in isolation in the hospital, utterly segregated from the outside world. After his discharge, he had to suffer not only from the disease's after effects, but also from the stigma of having been infected. This is the story of So Chang Rook, a professor at the Korea University Graduate School of International Studies and a member of the United Nations Human Rights Commission, and now the author of the book, I Was Infected. In the book, So writes about the things he experienced after being diagnosed with COVID-19. It's based on the notes he kept while hospitalized, as well as writings posted on his social media. The book is divided into four parts. His infection pathway, his diagnosis process, isolation in the hospital, and his recovery period after being discharged. In addition to being a narrative of how So's life changed after he contracted an infectious disease, the book could also be seen as a kind of COVID-19 human rights report penned by a human rights expert who found himself confronted with discrimination and racism and ostracism after being diagnosed. After testing positive for COVID-19, So was ushered into a world of isolation and segregation. Once diagnosed, he had to be hospitalized in a negative pressure ward where patients with contagious diseases are treated. 
The ward is completely cut off from the outside world. Cameras monitor patients 24 hours a day. In the absence of any suitable treatments, So found himself turned into a lab rat of sorts as he was given malaria drugs and other medications. Every day he suffered from the, quote, terror that I might die and an overwhelming feeling of isolation with nobody near me, unquote. He continued muttering to himself through his three-week stay in the hospital as he stared at the room's white walls and looked up at its ceiling. He had to take psychiatric medications due to psychological issues, including feelings of dizziness and tightness in his chest. So did not find it easy to talk about his psychological problems with others. I didn't even want to say that I had been infected with COVID-19. I was afraid how people might view it if I talked about developing psychological conditions on top of that, he recalls. Attitudes of discrimination and hatred towards COVID-19 patients only made things more difficult for him. Online, he was barraged with malicious posts, treated as a virus vector simply for having become infected. The focus of the hatred shifted as it spread, starting with the Chinese before being directed in turn to the places and groups associated with infections in South Korea, Daegu and North Gyeongsan regions, the Xinjiangji movement, LGBTQ persons, and others. People unwittingly create feelings of fear to protect themselves, so writes. At such times, the hatred that is part of human nature reveals itself. Exhausted by the seemingly endless situation as the COVID-19 pandemic drags on, he wrote, we pin the responsibility on others and become infuriated with people who do not observe disease prevention guidelines. Unemployment has skyrocketed and society has erupted with negative energy, including a feeling of deprivation among young people who had been preparing to find jobs, he wrote. Hatred leads to exclusion and stigmatization. Social stigma is one of the human rights issues that has reared its head amid the pandemic, just as it did during the MERS outbreak in 2015. According to the results of counseling sessions with formerly isolated MERS patients and family members of those who lost their lives, the most difficult experiences had to do with social stigma, owing to mistaken information. They recalled struggling with the suffering of having to stay in the hospital despite having fully recovered and the frustration of having to stay at home after even being discharged. For Mr. So as well, the fears escalated further after his discharge. He was unable to simply walk the streets due to the possibility of reinfection, the after effects such as dizziness, and the seemingly uneasy way that people looked at him. Even after the government officially announced that people who retested positive were not contagious, Mr. So could sense people avoiding him. Becoming a sort of minority himself gave Mr. So a clearer perspective on the lives of others in minority groups. For this human rights expert, the period of COVID-19 treatment was an intensive experience of learning about actual human rights. He gained a bit more of an understanding of how refugees, disabled people, and LGBTQ people felt when faced with discrimination and exclusion or were confronted with harsh attitudes from others. Mr. So found himself thinking more deeply than ever about how it might be possible for all human beings to live humane lives under every kind of circumstance. He reflected once again on how human rights can only be firmly achieved when based on a foundation of togetherness. While my life until then had been a process of seeking human rights in my head, the experience of being infected with COVID-19 gave me a realization in my heart of what it meant to be humane, he writes. In a March 10 telephone interview with the Hanky Array newspaper, Mr. So explained, quote, the book's title, I Was Infected, isn't just about my infection with COVID-19, but refers to being infected with the mistaken ideas of society. 
things like prejudice and discrimination. I want to emphasize that the vaccine for that is human rights education, he added. I hope that reading this book during the COVID-19 pandemic will be an opportunity for people to think about how they can live together with dignity. I Was Infected is the title of the book, and it was written by Mr. So Chang Rok. Okay, we're gonna to turn to our conversation today. I'm really excited to introduce my guest to you. Let me turn to that. Jason Kaufman is the Director of Archives and Records Management for Mennonite Church USA in Elkhart, Indiana. Along with managing and providing access to the recorded history of the church, he also interprets and raises awareness about Mennonite history for the broader denomination. A graduate of Goshen College, which is a Mennonite college in Northern Indiana, is a master's degree in Latin American history from the University of New Mexico and a PhD in Latin American history from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's also a certified archivist and has a digital archives specialist certificate from the Society of American Archivists. He has a growing interest in oral history and directed his first oral history project in 2019. Jean Kilheffer Hess is executive director of Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society in Lancaster, Pennsylvania with a staff of 18, three museums, and a historic site hosting a home built in 1719 and a native longhouse replica, the Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society interprets Mennonite life and early Pennsylvania history. Jean is a graduate of Messiah University and Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. She's especially energized by collaborative efforts that help people value their own and others' stories, both historical and history in the making. Dean Kilheffer-Hess and Jason Kaufman, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Happy to be here. We had a couple of technical difficulties at the top, and I really appreciate your persistence as we managed to um, make the call work out. So life in um, pandemic technology mode continues on for everybody, but it's really good to see you here. And I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic is looking like there. Gene, can I start with you, please? Sure. I'm calling in from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and the virus continues to circulate and affect life really in every way. So there's quite a high incidence of continuing high incidence of spread. And so we're keeping on. What about vaccine availability there? Vaccine availability is increasing at a rapid rate, which is exciting. Um, it feels like many of the folks in my networks have had access or are soon getting access to at least the first shot. So that feels feels different. There's been some news reporting about that process being a bit slower in Pennsylvania and other places, but of course that may be county by county. Have you experienced that there? I imagine there is a county by county difference. Um, Lancaster County has a significant, has turned what had been a mall space into a large vaccination center and there are other resources as well. And that's getting geared up. So we've been, I guess, lucky. It feels like Lancaster is well served. Jason, bringing you in, same question. Where are you calling from and what's the situation looking like there with the pandemic? Sure, yeah, I am uh, calling from my home in Goshen, Indiana. Um, and 
Goshen is part of Elkhart County, and currently Elkhart County is in the very high risk category. Uh, it was much worse in November and December uh, when hospitals in the area were at capacity. Uh, now the situation is is slightly improved. Um, vaccination is getting rolled out. I think I checked recently and there's a, about 13% of the total population is vaccinated in Elkhart County. And just this week, I think uh, on Wednesday, they opened eligibility to any adult over the age of 16 in Indiana. So now it's it's wow. it's going to be widely available um, in the coming weeks. Uh, there's actually an interesting uh, wrinkle, though. There's a statewide mask mandate that is set to expire in Indiana next week on April 6th. And so now county officials need to decide whether or not they're going to issue a, a local a local mask mandate. So, so you might have a mask mandate expire, but a vaccination available for everyone over 16 these overlapping public health orders become right, yeah. very confusing and yeah. hard to communicate over time. It is. It's confusing and kind of uh, hard. It's hard to understand, like, the why they would make a decision like that. You know, like, why would you lift the mask mandate less than a week after the vaccine is widely available to all adults? <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Yeah, it doesn't work overnight. Well, thank you both for um, those updates from where you're calling from. I'd like to just start kind of generally, maybe just to lay out some context for people who might not be as familiar with um, what the term Anabaptist even means and, and how that relates to communities uh, in the United States and around the world today. Jason, let me start with you on that. Can you just give us some general context? And then, Gene, I'll turn to you. Sure. Uh, so Anabaptism, it's Anabaptism is kind of a larger um, umbrella term for uh, a group of uh, a wing of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. It was called the radical wing of the of the Reformation in the 16th century. And they were distinguished from other groups um, by the fact that they practiced adult believers baptism, hence the word Anabaptism. So like new uh, like uh, like new baptism. And so that was a pretty radical thing at the time to practice uh, adult believers baptism instead of infant baptism. And so that's where the, num the name comes from. And Mennonites were just one, one of many branches within that larger group of Anabaptists. And so Mennonites take their name from uh, a Dutch priest named Menno Simons uh, from this, uh, who lived in the 16th century. Uh, and so... Um, we descend, uh, Mennonites descend or trace their history to, to him. Um, so uh, Mennonites are often confused with, with, with the Amish. Amish is, the Amish are another group within that larger Anabaptist movement. Um, and they separated from the Mennonites in the late 1600s. Um, so over the centuries, there's um, there have been more than 300, 300 different groups that have emerged that claim Anabaptist identity, and they live all over the world now. I think it's something like 87 countries, and there's over 2, two million people around the world who claim Anabaptist identity today. Well, thank you for that introduction. Gene, let me just bring you in anything that you might like to add to that, and Maybe we can talk a little bit also about how Anabaptist communities um, like Mennonite and Amish communities um, preserve their traditional folkways and, and how they live in the world today. 
Yeah, so some of the other um, labels for certain parts of the Anabaptist family that some of your uh, viewers or listeners might be familiar with is the Church of the Brethren, the Brethren in Christ, Mennonite Brethren, Hutterites, and then there's a range of of Mennonites, Beachy Amish. So just wanted to add a few more of those, those labels into the understanding. I would say that um, each Anabaptist community works at maintaining its um, folkways in whatever ways that that community has decided are important and they decide that together. So one of the key aspects of being Anabaptist is that community is central. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later on this call, but that usually that means lots of being together, lots of seeing each other, lots of doing things together. And of course, COVID-19 has complicated that in some ways. So community, a commitment to peace, adult baptism, and faith being very, very practical, which often takes the form of some kind of service to others would be some of those key characteristics that are um, core to almost all Anabaptist groups. So you may be familiar, um, we'll use Amish for an example. Amish communities have decided that um, some visual markers are some of the ways that they help maintain their community. So things like transportation and certain clothing styles. Um, some communities don't invest in the stock market, for example. Like there are just different um, kinds of markers that help communities stay connected to each other and um, engaged together in their faith and everyday life together. Having lived in Pennsylvania myself um, and been to the Reading Terminal Market and traveled also to Lancaster um, and actually been to your uh, facility there and learned about um, the history there, um, I was fascinated, of course, to learn that history uh, coming from Texas myself originally. And so to find pockets of these communities in the United States and other places around the world is is just really interesting. And keeping that history alive, of course, must be a, a pretty constant effort, right, Jean? Yeah, it's a very dynamic effort. And one of the interesting things about this full spectrum of Mennonite and Amish and other Anabaptist groups is the two places where um, the various groups often connect and work together is one in history, history memory keeping and history keeping and sharing and then also in disaster response and recovery. So Mennonite Disaster Service is one group that's well known for a place where culturally conservative Mennonites and others, as well as uh, mainstream Mennonites work together to respond to disaster. So I'm honored to be part of the history field and to be connecting with all those groups in that, that work together. Jason, just to bring you back in, in terms of this, and, and maybe it's hard to generalize, but um, just maybe pulling out some common threads in the ways that um, Anabaptist communities have fared in the pandemic. Some of the things that Jean was talking about, for example, a real commitment to close-knit communities, um, to being together in worship, uh, those seem to run a little contrary to how we were instructed to live starting March of last year. That's mm -hmm. just one layer of this, I'm sure. 
Jason, I wonder if you could speak to that issue. Definitely. I think the, the communities that I'm in Goshen, I think most of the churches, at least that I've heard of doing um, like Zoom uh, virtual church services. Uh, and so you have your meeting together virtually. And so that's one way that a lot of churches in my area have found to try to continue to be community together, even when we can't be physically in the same space with each other. But there are a lot of other Mennonite and other Anabaptist churches that have continued to meet in person throughout this whole year. Um, and so, yeah, I was just listening to a really interesting discussion that was moderated by a, um, by, what's her name? Um, Marlene Epp. She's the director of, of the Institute of Anabaptist and Mennonite Studies at Conrad Grable College in, um, in Ontario. We had panelists uh, representing various um, conservative Anabaptist groups, and they were talking about the importance of community, which is what one of the things that Jean mentioned, and how COVID-19 has kind of limited the, their ability to, to do some of those things that they do on a regular basis. And so one of the, one of the um, panelists was talking about older Mennonites in Ontario and how Sunday is like a big community day for a lot of, for a lot of those uh, families in old, or in the older older community, and so they would have a church service in person, activities in the afternoon, and then um, and then and so many of those communities have continued to do those things, and so I think that that um, that has affected you know um, infection rates for those was intergenerational living. A lot of those communities they. They don't have separate family or units that live separately. They would have like three different generations living under the same roof. And so you have, um, it just changes the, the dynamics of risk and exposure to the, to, to the virus. Gene, just maybe bringing it there back to Lancaster in that region in Pennsylvania, do these communities have sort of culturally specific approaches to healthcare that might be different from um, their neighbors who are not Mennonite or Amish? So um, I think maybe we should expand the awareness of the Mennonite diversity just one step further mm -hmm. to say that sure. in addition to sort of your traditional um, European heritage folks that you might think of when you think of um, a, a Mennonite community, so maybe a, a more culturally conservative Mennonite community, there are also, um, many individuals of color who are part of the Mennonite church. And so um, for those culturally conservative communities that we've been kind of referencing here, that's, that's one part of the spectrum and I'll address that related to healthcare in a moment. But also most Mennonites or many Mennonites or Anabaptists, um, you wouldn't know that they were Mennonite or Anabaptists walking down the street. And so um, many are accessing healthcare the same way as anyone else um, in the mainstream. So, but of course the, the, the communities that are more visually separate um, oftentimes are accessing healthcare somewhat differently. And that might represent itself in a preference for treating illness at home or for doing home births, for example, or for using a local uh, center for births rather than using a hospital. Um, and also there is some 
reliance, I think, still on traditional medicine. So the kinds of things that um, have been carried on generation to generation, and it's it's how you treat, you know, a basic cold or something like that. So yeah, there would be some differences there. So you are both the recipients together working as a team uh, for with some, you won a grant from Villanova University and the LePage Center for History in the public interest. And congratulations on that and on this project that you've been collaborating on, Anabaptist History Today. So let's talk about that a little bit now that we have some of the context here. Jean, let me start with you on that. Tell us about the project, some of the goals and the kind of work that you're doing. So the project started actually um, with a call from Jason. It was his idea, and I'll let him speak a little bit more to that. But I got really excited about a collaborative effort that would invite various Anabaptists to think about their everyday life during this period, and maybe in general, but especially during this unusual period, um, as something that should be shared in a digital way or in another way and saved, something that can go in the archives. And I know that um, one of the things that sparked Jason's interest was looking in the Mennonite Church USA archives for the, um, trying not to use the word Spanish flu, but I'm forgetting the other name for it. Um, looking for what was in the archives related to that experience and finding not as much as he had hoped to find. So we decided to work together to um, get people excited and invite contributions um, so that in the future, they can understand what it was like for us to live during this period. That's a classic historian move, Jason, and one that resonates with me. If something's happening right now, let's go back and find 100 years ago and see what people were doing then. And Jean's referencing the 1918 uh, Great Influenza. Jason, tell us a little bit more about how your ideas got going with this project and what the work is like. Sorry. Hey, Scott, I'm having a hard time. Uh, I'm having some connection issues. Could you repeat your it's question? No problem. Why don't you try to go in the stop cam mode, Jason, and see if that helps us a little bit. We'll lose the visual, but we might gain a little bit better connectivity on the audio if, if, if you can do that. Okay, let's see if that helps. So Gene was telling us about the origins of this project, and you're looking in the Mennonite archives to try to find some of the history earlier on of how the Mennonites had dealt with the pandemic in 1918. Talk to us about your idea for the Anabaptist History Today project. Sure, yeah, so we, I had been seeing, I, I had been reading articles about other uh, history-related organizations launching projects to try to, to capture um, the experiences and stories of people in their communities, um, you know, back way back in March and April, when when things were first kind of kind of um, starting with all of the quarantines with the pandemic and things like that. And so I. What it would be like to do something for the Mennonite and Anabaptist community and Gina. I've been talking already about ways to uh, encourage collaboration between Mennonite and other Anabaptist archives and, and history organizations. And so we we thought that this could be a good kind of 
pilot project to kind of test out this idea about what uh, uh, about trying to pull resources and collaborate between um, organizations. And so um, we actually looked into the possibility of joining with another already established project called Pandemic Religion, which is based out of George uh, Washington University. There's a few, a couple of professors there who had launched this project and were trying to get um, basically as broad a perspective as they could from any and all um, um, religious faiths and how, how their lives and communities have have been impacted by the pandemic. And we considered that, but because we, we kind of saw this as a pilot project and that could lead to future uh, a future collaboration, we decided we wanted to do something on our own. And so we that's what we ended up doing. And it's been really a really interesting uh, process so far. And we've been really encouraged by the, by the interest and support we've had from so many different organizations. I think there's 16 different organizations that are part of our collaborative. Gene, could you tell us some about a little bit about what's being collected? What are people contributing to the project? I've talked to um, many different um, historians and anthropologists, archivists over this pandemic on COVID calls, who are doing similar kinds of projects. And, and we have so many pandemic archives developing around the country and around the world. It's really important work right now. I'm, I'm sort of curious to know what's making its way into your collection. I would say um, some of the themes the, of types of things that are appearing in the collection are um, items that revolve around appreciation for the arts. So it might be um, poetry or some other kind of personal expression regarding how an individual has experienced this time. And then secondly, it would be focused on um, their church community life. So it could be a glimpse of an outdoor activity that the church was able to share together that would normally done in normally be done in indoor space um, or just other other ways of sharing how people are finding ways to connect which again is very important to Anabaptists but doing so with joy and in other new ways we also have um, one person who did their congregation decided to do an entire um, oral history project, interviewing individuals of various generations within the congregation um, about their experience with COVID. And she uploaded all of those oral history interviews um, to the Anabaptist History Today site. So lots of different kinds of formats, but um, mostly focused on some kind of artistic expression from personal experience or shared, shared life together. What about some of the themes of isolation, um, stigma, concern that people have over loss of time? Are, are you seeing those reflected as well? We are. And I think um, Jason would probably be better able to speak to some of the, the themes that have been popping up. He's been part of the group moderating um, the contributions as they come in. So, Jason. Okay. Jason, let's bring you in just to hear a little bit more about the kinds of themes that are surfacing in the in the archive. And again, I'm fascinated by the description you've both been giving about the tight-knitted um, nature of these communities, which means that in times when people have to not be together, that provides stress. Yeah, so um, the some of the other, I mean, some of the other things that I thought that I 
I mean, themes I've noticed have been um, well. One that one that I saw recently that was really interesting was from um, an organization called Camp Deer Park, which is uh, it's just it's a Mennonite camp out um, in in New York State, but it's actually it's a it's owned by fifteen different Mennonite uh, churches in New York City. And so they, it was kind of, it was really interesting last, last year in March and April and May when everything was so bad, the, um, in, in New York city, um, I think it was really tough on all the folks who are connected to these churches, not being able to meet in person and being quarantined in their apartments and things like that. And so Camp Deer Park became a place, uh, later on in the summer where people could go to get out of the city and just get out into into nature. And so they ended up having family camps for um, families that were connected to these churches to get out. And so that was a, a, an interesting one um, that kind of speaks to the, yeah, the anxiety and stress that um, a lot a lot of people felt, especially during those early months um, in quarantine and stuff. Um, another really interesting one was from the Night Center Development Organization that has partners all over the world. And so they had a really interesting um, piece that they submitted from service workers in places like Laos and Nepal, and so it was it was called the view from my window and so they would show a video a short video clip of what it looks like from their window and then um, offer a short paragraphs reflection on what what the how the pandemic has has impacted their lives and the communities that they're engaging with all over the world so those are some some of the interesting ones that I that I've, and that we're hoping to get more of in the coming months how do you plan to make uh, this archive available to people? Uh, what will be the ways that you'll, I'm assuming you'll build it out so that people can access the interviews, but it'd be curious to see how you then maybe aggregate or, you know, will there be essays written or how will you move it out into sort of more general circulation? Gene, let me start with you on that. So everything that um, appears on the site is immediately available on the World Wide Web to the public. So when someone submits something that they want to share, they choose which of the 15 collaborating organizations, and those organizations are both in the US and Canada, that they want to be responsible for the long-term archiving of what they've submitted. But then beyond that, it becomes available uh, broadly. So yeah, it's currently all available and anyone can access it. Jason, let me bring you back in just to um, talk about some of these themes a little bit. And since faith uh, and the shared experience of faith is at the center of Anabaptist experience, as you've described it, I wonder if that theme has come up as well. You know, in, in dealing with disaster and making sense of the world, um, turning to faith, challenges to faith seems to be uh, a theme that we see expressed. Oh, we seem to have lost. Jason, maybe he'll rejoin us, but I'm hoping, Gene, this question could be applicable to you as well. And in fact, you were referencing a minute ago the 1918 in influenza. And, you know, that, that idea that faith is something that keeps communities together is a strong idea. It's, it's also a space, so 
when there's disaster and people rethink the world and their place in it. I wonder if that's, I don't know if that's popping up in your oral history or more generally in conversations that you've seen in the Anabaptist community, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, you're right. Faith remains central. And just as you asked about that, it brought to mind that for the congregation that I'm part of, uh, we've had a Zoom worship service on Sundays, but then also very on early on in the p- pandemic, there was a separate Zoom session created on Wednesdays, and it's called Community Life. And it's entirely just folks sharing their joys and concerns uh, so that other people can be aware, can feel connected, and also can pray and support them in a variety of ways. So it's just one example of how faith remains uh, central to the experience. One of the things that Jason and I did when we were creating um, the site is we worked hard on the welcome um, and sort of introducing what kinds of things we we welcome. And that's that's very broad. So if you go to the website and take a look at the introduction, it says, um, it specifically mentions how your faith has helped you during this time, or maybe how you felt that your faith has not been as helpful as you had hoped it had been. So we're really open to the full range of experience, whether whether it may feel like um, you're having a crisis of faith in the midst of all these changes, or if faith has really been a resource that's helped you stay sane and focused. Jason, I'm glad to see that you've rejoined us here, and I wanted to get your perspective on this. We're talking a little bit about how people in this Anabaptist History Today project are talking more specifically about faith, what they're drawing from faith at this time, but also maybe the way that their faith is being challenged. Sure. <clears throat> sure, yeah. And one of the things that we already mentioned is the the strong sense of community. And I think that that has also really come through um, as people have adapted and changed it, changed in response to the pandemic. Um, I was just reading the other day, um, there's an organization called the Mennonite World Conference that is kind of an umbrella organization for Anabaptists, the Mennonite uh communities of faith all, all around the world, and they created a COVID support fund. It's kind of a, um, uh, it's like a mutual aid fund for um, congregations, Anabaptist congregations and organizations that have been uh, affected um, as a result of the, the pandemic, whether it's through job loss or, or other types of other crises that have been, have, that have happened in response to the pandemic. And to date, I think it said that Mennonite World has distributed over fi- almost $500,000 in aid to v- various groups around the world. And so that has been, that's another example of how, um, yeah, how faith, how faith and this tradition of mutual aid has, has informed Anabaptist and Mennonite responses to the pandemic. That's a really important theme and, and something, you know, we've heard a lot about in, in the pandemic. And I've talked with many guests about mutual aid. Uh, communities. And Gina was sort of bring you into that. I mean, how does that actually work on the ground, either in ways you've heard people talk about it in the project or just in your own life and observation? Um, what kinds of services are people providing in a sort of community mode um, instead of relying on outside social services or outside financial assistance? Um, often a very practical way that mutual aid happens is um, sharing food 
So this is not unique to Mennonite communities, but when someone is struggling and indicates they need assistance or support, um, getting together and making sure they have um, meals delivered on a regular basis so they can focus on whatever it is that they're dealing with is a key way. Um, other kinds of practical concerns like transportation or childcare or yeah, the kinds of things that people do in community together. Um, for culturally conservative groups, mutual aid has a much, um, a much more structural, it's more structurally in place for a variety of things in life, not just emergencies, but um, things like, you know, not, not purchasing commercial insurance, for example, so that there, there's this clear understanding that when someone faces a loss that the, co the community shares their financial resources. So that's been a long tradition, those kinds of more formal mutual aid um, approaches. But when it comes to pandemic and everyday life, it's usually leaning on, you know, the community life Zoom that I mentioned, you know, in the congregation or something like that. And then the practical needs can be um, met by folks in the congregation. One of the things that the pandemic has revealed and provoked, uh, unfortunately, is the inequalities in American life, too. And, you know, as members of what is a religious minority group, even among Protestants, I'm sort of curious how that's been surfacing as well. Jean, I want to start with you on this just because there's been, and I don't know how widespread this is, there was some reporting throughout last year that in Lancaster County, um, local officials there got sort of drawn into uh, rejecting the governor's orders on mask, mask mandate, and things like that. Um, it struck me that maybe that reporting had picked up one little thing and tried to build a world around it. I don't, I don't really know, but I am curious. Um, how Anabaptists may be experiencing stigma, maybe even violence at this time, a sense that they're isolated um, because of the social tensions that the pandemic has created? I've not personally been aware of any uh, violence um, pointed at or connected with Anabaptist communities in the Lancaster area. Um, Unfortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, all the same fault lines that we see everywhere else in society with regard to politics and with regard to various perceived spots on the spectrum also exist in Anabaptist and Mennonite communities. So yeah, we're, we're experiencing all the same kinds of um, push and pull conversations in, within congregations and within and between groups. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Jean Kilheffer hess and Jason Kaufman about their project, Anabaptist History Today, and they are uh, winners of the Villanova University LePage Center History in the Public Interest Grant. They've been telling me about this project. We have a couple of minutes left, Jason, just to come back to you. In, and I wonder, it's just sort of a, a general question, but what do you think that non-Anabaptists, so people who may be just learning about these communities for the first time today, what would they draw from this collection? I think we're still having a little audio Sorry, difficulty. Scott, I, on the Anabaptists. Yeah, more generally, what will people draw from, from this collection to, under, 
understand how Anabaptists yeah. are dealing with it, or yeah, I'm sort of interested in that you know, sense. It's not only for the Anabaptist community. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope that project people will be able to learn about the um, the diversity of the Anabaptist community. Um, I think there's a lot of questions, especially about the Amish and Mennonites. Um, and so hopefully this project can give people a sense of like, like what, where are Mennonite and Anabaptists? What are they doing in response to the pandemic? How are they trying to live their lives and um, and can and continue to um, to share their lives together in community in under circumstances where it's really often it's often pretty hard to do that. Uh, and so I think that is one thing that I hope comes through with this project. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the main thing. That's what I would say, at least, um, is that the, the Anabaptist community is kind of what what Jean what Jean mentioned a few minutes ago. The Anabaptist community um, has a lot of distinctive features, but then there's also but there's a whole range of of uh, there's a whole spectrum of belief and practice, um, and so. That's yeah. I think that's that, thanks, that's Jason. Same question to you, Gene. Just um, you know, how do you expect people to use this collection within maybe the Anabaptist community, but also outside? What should others take away from it? Do you think? I think it offers an opportunity to really get to that core of learning our own and others' stories across boundaries. So for for various Anabaptists. Um, all across the U.S. and Canada, and even the world, um, it's it's comforting, it's interesting, and it brings joy to get a glimpse into what how someone else is living in these days, and what what keeps them going, and how they stay connected and and engaged. But I'm also aware that there's often a perception from those who aren't Anabaptist or who are just learning about what Anabaptism or Mennonites and Amish, uh, what it is, that it's kind of closed, that it's that it's a community with very strict boundaries. And I know that when people drive by the Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society, there's often this impression that, you know, it's a society, it's, it's very much not a place I'm necessarily going to stop in and be welcomed. So I hope that um, folks beyond the, the Anabaptist communities um, can feel welcomed and can feel like they can have sort of a no-risk place to get a glimpse into what life is like for those of us who choose to um, live committed to this um, faith and lifestyle. Thank you for that point. And, and I'm really impressed by that because we've heard a lot in this last year and we've seen a lot of what drives people apart. And I was asking you just a moment ago about the tensions and stigma that may, um, you know, reach into the Anabaptist community as well. But I'm also really moved by this idea. I mean, the pandemic, and we saw this last March and April more effectively, I think it is a collective moment as well. So people across faith groups and non-faith groups are grappling with all of the concerns, fears, economic stresses of the pandemic. Strikes me, you know, that that idea of somebody driving by the historical society, um, Gene, they don't have to be Anabaptist to come in and get a sense of what your community has faced. I think that's an important bridge to build. 
Yeah, it's an exciting uh, place to be sort of recognizing in each other, you know, common humanity and lots of common experiences while also being interested in learning about um, what's distinctive and why does it matter to you? And yeah, I think that's, that's an important way to connect. Just closing out, um, Jean, just to ask you that at, at the historical society there, the Lancaster Mennonite Historical Society, of which you're the director, do you expect that some of these materials will actually um, become part of exhibits or more sort of standing features that guests um, will interact with? I know it's pretty early in the project still, but I'm always fascinated how you know experts like yourself are going to bring these into wider circulation. Yes, I hope that um, what's being shared through Anabaptist history today can become part of longer term communication. And specifically on our campus, uh, we have a location called the Mennonite Information Center, which is, is really about welcoming tourists and welcoming guests. And I can see a number of the, the things that have been shared through Anabaptist history today becoming uh, communication points or story nuggets that we can share um, with the broader, broader world in that way. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I just want to also thank Jason Kaufman and I want to thank Jean Kilheffer Hess, the uh, co-producers of the Anabaptist History Today project. And just a reminder, you can catch their um, project. I put up the link a minute ago. Um, you can find it pretty easily online and, and watch for um, those oral histories and those essays and the things that are going to flow from that. Jason, I'm sorry we had a few technical issues there, but thanks for your insights from Indiana. And Gene, thanks for calling in from Pennsylvania. It's good to be with you both. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, we'll end this discussion now, but please join me back in just a few minutes. I'll be starting a second uh, COVID call session today. I'll be talking with Alex J. Goldstein, the founder of the Faces of COVID site. Uh, that site's coming up on a year of history, and I'll talk with Alex in just a few minutes. Gene and Jason, thank you so much. Stay healthy.